What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another broadcast of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's episode is a very unique one in the sense that archaeologists and the public are often engaged in uh, what we might, for lack of a better word, call the fantastic and the amazing. And one of the purposes of the show is to sort of boil down this uh, spectacular aspects of archaeology, which we uh, have addressed in, in, in some earlier episodes, the entire Indiana Jones myth, and what people fantasize or, or project about what archaeologists really do. Are we looking for things like Noah's Ark or the Holy Grail? or uh, Moses, or famous individuals of the Bible. And, and in most cases, uh, those are fantastic searches, and they are aspects of archaeology that draw the attention of the public. But in, as I said, in, in many cases, or in most cases, uh, the likelihood of your finding something that is very, very popular, say in the Bible or or in the in the early literature, it's it's just not very likely you're going to to be able to find it. Or in many cases, there isn't even a basis for locating it in terms of archaeological strategies and methods. However, today's episode is one of the is one of those rare instances in which <clears throat> a very famous individual from lore and from reality. Uh, was actually excavated and found through a systemic uh, search that involved history, archaeology, and some methodologies that have been most recently applied in archaeological work. And we are going to talk about one of these fantastic projects that has captured the news headlines recently. And is again, as in the case of Stonehenge, which was our pre- one of our previous uh, episodes, uh, is go- takes us back to the United Kingdom. Uh, we are talking about the search for Richard III, 
And my guest and the individual who made most of this happen is Dr. Richard Buckley. Uh, Dr. Buckley is uh, at the University of Leicester, the lead archaeologist for the Grey Friars Project, which is the project uh, that is, I suspect, still ongoing and which is involved with the search and the recovery of uh, the skeleton and the remains of Richard III. Dr. Buckley graduated from the University of Durham in 1979 and uh, became a field officer with Leicestershire Archaeological Unit from 1980 to 1995. During this time frame, he worked on the investigation of Leicester Castle Hall and John of Gaunt's uh, cellar, um, the Shire's excavation in 1988 and 89, and the Causeway Lane excavation in the early 90s. In 1995, he formed the uh, University of Leicester Archaeological Services Unit, which is co-director. He manages uh, a number of projects, primarily in the East Midlands in the UK, and he specializes in urban sites and historic buildings. He was consultant and uh, project manager for the High Cross Leicester project, which led to three major excavations with uh, budgets in excess of four million pounds. Um, I'm pleased to uh, welcome to the program uh, Richard Buckley. Thank you for appearing. Hello, nice to meet you. Let me ask you first, uh, Dr. Buckley, um, about your background. Did you work with English Heritage? No, actually, I'm actually from Leicester originally, and I went on my first excavation in Leicester when I was 15, so we were allowed to to go on Wednesday afternoons and do do other things rather than talk work, so I went off and joined in an excavation in the city of uh, an Augustinian friary, which had been Mm -hmm. involved in the 16th century, so that's where I started, really. Right, Um, and yes. And then, yes, then basically completed my... What, what, what in Britain are called A-levels, which are the exams you take before going to university, and then, then did a degree in archaeology at the University of Durham. And so you became very involved in local archaeology from a very early age, and were you focused on that the entire time that you proceeded with your studies? No, I mean, when I was a student in, in Durham, I think I was, I, was, I was looking at sort of world archaeology. Um, where I also had to follow the curriculum, and I, I did excavations elsewhere in Britain. I worked on sites in Wales, a Roman fort in Wales. But, you know, in the holidays, I'd always come back to Leicester and, and if possible, join in with work that the local unit was doing. Uh, and so in the holidays, I worked on as a Roman, a Roman villa site in Leicester I worked on as well. And then when I finished my degree... Like a lot of students, especially archaeology students, I, I finished my degree and then thought, well, what should I do now? I need to get a bit of excavation under my belt and came home briefly, but then amazingly got a job fairly quickly uh, working as a, a field archaeologist on a, on a number of sites in Leicester. Now, a lot of our audience is from the U.S. and from North America, and the system in the U.K. is a bit different. But at this point in your career, you had gotten your Ph.D., you had finished your Ph.D. studies? No, I, I did actually have a PhD yet. I'm working on it. Uh, no, I'd, I'd done my bachelor's degree. Uh, but in, in sort of local archaeology, professional archaeology, it wasn't so essential that you had a higher academic qualification in those days anyway. Uh, what was more important was that you had the ability to excavate adequately. So you had to get a bit of experience as a volunteer learning the techniques of excavation um, and, and learning about all different periods of excavation as well. 
and also having the ability to to, to write reports adequately. And a lot of, of our just started that way. You know, that's how they would work from 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 that way, rather than going down the purely academic route, uh, because most of the archaeology we do in Britain is a result of uh, it's called rescue archaeology, really, where sites are under threat from development. So your system, in a sense, is very similar to ours. Um, basically, archaeology is done where it needs to be done in advance of development operations and that sort of thing, correct? That's correct, yes, yes. And so um, your, I'm sorry, your, your studies uh, sort of went parallel with that and you got involved with the individual units. And in, in this case, they're organized on a regional basis, correct? Yes, it has changed over the, the, the. I mean, I've been working now since you know for over thirty years. But originally, there were lots of uh, county-based archaeological units. They sort of county being one of the major administrative, administrative units in Britain, and Leicestershire Archaeological Unit was the one I worked for originally, and that was um, funded partly by the local authority, the local county council and partly by English Heritage. Eventually, the funding all came from the County Council. And under that system, we did rescue archaeology sites with grants from English Heritage in those days. But in 1990, it all changed when the government decided to make archaeology a material consideration in the determination of planning applications. And so then, the principle of the polluter pays, if you like, i.e. the developer who's going to do the destruction, has to... Uh, pay for the recording of the archaeology. And that's why I sort of changed at that period to becoming more of a project manager who was looking at lots of sites, working out the costings and the budgets for them and the academic research questions we had to ask as well. Now, the, are those units tied into English Heritage? Or are they self-sufficient operations? Is there an umbrella for the organization and for the general uh, national efforts to do archaeology? Well, English Heritage have a sort of an advisory remit. Um, uh, they, they provide regional scientific advisors, for example, who can advise the units. But the units, uh, are, there's a variety of different types of units. Some of them, like ours, are based within universities, not many. There's only about three or four based within schools of archaeology. There are other units that are charitable trusts. Uh, some are private organizations. Um, and there are one or two local authority units left as well. But they all operate in a similar way now, and it's commercial, and they have to uh, quite often tender for archaeological projects. So somebody might come to us saying that the planning authority requires uh, this piece of archaeological work to be done. Are you interested in providing costs for it? And so that's how it works very often. Uh, fortunately, we still work very much in our own local region, and so we build up a great research expertise for a particular area. So, for example, in Leicester, um, which is a, a, as your listeners may not realise, is, is a town that actually goes right back to the first century BC. It's an, a late Iron Age settlement that then becomes a Roman town and a medieval town. Um, so, there's a lot of archaeology in the city, uh, and we're in the fortunate position where we, we still do 98% of it. And so all of these little bits of evidence that we excavate feed into a bigger research picture that we can then publish. 
Now, is the uh, research unit, you said you had mentioned that there are three or four locations in the country where the units are actually tied to the university. What is the nature of the connection between your unit unit and the university? And uh, is there a funding connection or is, is the monies that you actually get from private sources from English Heritage or is it a combination of the university, English Heritage and, and other sources? Right. Well, within the university, what, what we're known as is an entrepreneurial centre. So we're, we're our own cost centre. We're based within the School of Archaeology and Ancient History. So we have a great relationship with the academic staff in, in terms of the advice that they give us and the advice we give them. But the university expects us to produce a business plan every year that shows how much income is going to be coming in from commercial projects and how that's going to cover the costs of salaries consumables, photocopying, telephones and everything. So, in effect, we're a self-funding organization within the university. But the university does obviously underwrite us. They bank, they're like, they, they sort of bankroll us. But so far, we've, 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 we've done fine and, um, and, and managed to break even or, or make slight surpluses, which we can then plow back into new equipment and so forth. Um, so, so most... The other, the other university units, I think, work on a similar basis. Um, occasionally, you get funding from other sources. So, for example, if there's a research excavation, you might get a grant from the Society of Antiquaries of London, for example. It's, it's just one, one organization or, or Society for Medieval Archaeology or for Roman Studies. So occasionally, we do purely research projects, but mostly it's rescue that comes down from commercial developers. Uh, it's actually very similar to what happens here in the States, except that um, here, and, and I just want to sort of explain this to the audience, the university profile of, of being engaged in archaeological projects has been scaled down over the years because uh, the uh, timelines and the necessity for uh, producing products on a very quick turnaround basis was something that the universities couldn't be geared to since a lot of the manpower was supplied by students. But I'm seeing here, especially in uh, reviewing some of the projects that we've talked about on our program, that the English system seems to be a lot more sophisticated and there's a much more, uh, a higher rather premium placed on professionalism such that your workforces are not necessarily connected to the university, but really do run as independent profit centers, as you indicated. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. I mean, within our organization, we have our own certain number of our own specialists in ceramics and environmental archaeology, animal bone, and things like that. And we run many, many projects simultaneously and have a a sophisticated system for sort of managing, uh, jiggling, jiggling all the projects so that they all come to fruition at the right time. But of course, you're under a lot of pressure from private developers who have to have their developments completed to a deadline. And we're used to working to those deadlines, and so we have dedicated staff doing that. I think where it gets difficult is if you were relying on perhaps an academic member of staff for specialist input for such a project. Maybe they have other commitments such as teaching and their own research to do, and they can't work these tight timescales. So that's why it operates very well as a sort of an arm's length thing within the department, but the advice is still there from the academics when we need it. It seems to be much more efficient than ours, and uh, it's a, another program for another time. But let's take a look at how this project evolved. 
and uh, whether or not, in fact, this was a function of your exposing so much in the way of local archaeology in the vicinity of Leicester and in the vicinity of the regions that you've been working in, so that you eventually began, for lack of a better word, to focus in on the Richard III project. Yes, this project was extremely unusual. It's not a rescue archaeology project. And we were obviously very aware, and we have been for decades, where, well, it's not hundreds of years, where the reputed burial site of Richard III was. So we knew where it was, broadly speaking. Uh, we knew where the friary was, but we didn't know where the church was within the friary. But there was no necessity to try and dig him up, really, because it wasn't under threat from development or anything. And also, the site was an operational car park of a very sensitive um, local authority department, social services. So, you know, it wasn't something we'd even thought about doing particularly. Um, but what happened was we were basically approached by Philippa Langley of the Richard III Society, who had this idea that it would be great to try and find the remains of Richard III. And um, she had managed to get the ear of the chief executive of Leicester City Council at the time, uh, who got interested in the project. And the city then, obviously knowing that University of Leicester Archaeological Services had done most of the work in the city, suggested that she contacted me to find out whether we'd be interested in the project. And, I mean, I have to be honest about this. And, uh, I mean, I have a great relationship with Philip, and we get on really well. And uh, we have a standing joke that I, I, from the very beginning, thought there was absolutely no chance in a million years that we would find Richard III. <laughs> what actually attracted me to the project was really that we would get the opportunity to look at a part of Leicester that hasn't been researched before. And we might get to learn about the, the, the Grey Friars, the Franciscan Friary in Leicester, which was dissolved by Henry VIII, and about which we had no information. So that was what attracted me to it, not the possibility of finding Richard III, because I didn't think that was a, an option, really. I, I think in that sense, you reflect uh, in your position the, the thoughts of many professional archaeologists uh -huh. that yeah. look at, looking for this type of thing is almost a wild good, go goose chase. But by the same token, you will probably find something very significant in the course of doing this kind of work, correct? That's right, yes. I mean, you know, ultimately only about 17% of the Greyfriars precinct was available for investigation. And within that 17%, uh, that was all car park. And within the car park, there were buried electrical cables and gas lines and fiber optics. Plus, we didn't know where the church and everything was anyway, so that might be underneath buildings that were now on the site. But there's always the chance that we would learn little bits of evidence that would contribute to our overall research picture of the city as a whole. Do you have to remember, in, a, in, a, in an industrial town like Leicester, um, the opportunity to for doing very large excavations is comparatively rare. And the, the picture that we've got of Roman medieval Leicester is often built up from lots of small investigations taken together. So, sort of, sort of jigsaw, really, of, of small investigations. Um, and so whilst we wouldn't get the chance to look at any great area of the friary, because we only dug three very small trenches, any evidence that came up would add to the story of the city. I, I think, in that sense, your experiences are very similar to ours here in New York. I work in New York City, and oh, right, we yeah, do it. Yeah. 
yeah, we're doing the same sorts of things in the sense that you have an opportunity to go to a certain part of the city and do a very limited excavation because, as you obviously know, uh, just digging a hole in the ground in the middle of a major administrative city is an impossible thing to do because of utilities, permits, and the possibility of literally shutting down the city if you, if you cut across a yeah. sewer line or a gas yeah. line or something like that. And you have a limited opportunity, limited window, and if you're fortunate enough, you have about three or four different projects that are within the same area, and you can put the bits and pieces of that information yeah. together and look at a big model. And that's the way yours uh, clearly works for Lester. Now, getting back to the specifics of the project, uh, give us a little bit of a timeline as to how it started, when you began doing what, and how one stage of the project evolved from the next. Right, well, I mean, I had the first call from Philip Alangi in uh, January 2011, and, and I said, obviously she didn't know anything about the process of doing archaeology, and I said, yes, it's a very interesting project, but what you need to do first is do something called a desk-based archaeological assessment, where we can look at the historic mapping and do overlays of the 18th century maps and the modern maps and get an idea of how the land use has changed. And also research the what's called in Britain the historic environment record, so... Most cities and counties have this record that's maintained that records all archaeological discoveries that have taken place with details of where they were and, and, and what was found. So that all that background research needs to be done first to help us to get a feel of where best where, where we might best place the trenches to try and achieve the aims of the project. So she commissioned that, and that was done probably in about, uh, I think, probably the spring of 2011, and then the next thing was that we had meetings with the city council uh, to discuss the project, which might have occurred even that year, potentially. Um, and somebody suggested we tried ground-penetrating radar on the site um, to try and look through the tarmac and get some indications of whether there were any wall lines that we could put trenches across to see whether they were particular friary buildings. Um, I don't know whether you have much experience of ground-penetrating radar, but we've tried it on a few occasions in Leicester, and unfortunately the archaeology is so complicated that rarely have the results produced anything that we can actually target. Um, the uh, is we're going to have to take a break here, I'm sorry, but we will get yeah. back with you and uh, discuss this entire situation of ground-penetrating radar and how it does and doesn't work in urban environments after we take this break. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life 
goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, we're back on this segment of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and the 21st Century Archaeology, and I am speaking with Richard Buckley, who is uh, undertaking the very, very um, <clears throat> provocative and uh, informative excavations in the vicinity of Leicester in the UK, and he is the uh, researcher, the principal researcher, who has... Uh, recently exposed and identified um, the gravesite of Richard III. And we were talking about how um, <clears throat> Mr. Buckley and his crew are sort of narrowing down their search, and we're discussing the use of ground-penetrating radar uh, underneath the surface to identify disturbances in the soil and in the substrate. And you were talking about uh, using the GPR, and of course, I'm sure you ran across the entire situation that we have as well here in New York, where you're just locating the the, uh, positions of utility lines, uh, water lines, uh, fiber optic cables, and that sort of thing. Why don't you take us through that uh, as you began uh, telling you? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, we're faced with a car park, and there are various drains in there, and we can see where some of the drain lines are. We don't know where the walls or any of the buildings of the Friary might be, because nothing survives above ground or any, any of the maps either. So the GPR survey was tried in, in the hope that we might get something to target. problem with Leicester's archaeology is, first of all, it can be very deep. We get uh, archaeology that can be as much as four and a half metres below present ground level, going back to the sort of undisturbed natural ground. But uh, I mean, over the years, we've built a deposit model of the city, so a contour map that shows the level of natural ground and the level of modern ground, and therefore the thickness of build-up. That's the first problem, is unpredictability, really, of, of the depth of material above the archaeology. The second thing is, is that because there are no decent stone sources near Leicester, that every generation recycles the stone of previous buildings, and so we only ever find robber trenches. I don't know whether you have robber trenches in New York, but... but, but we, we do, we got... do. We do. Yes. Mm-hmm. So ours, ours, all the Roman buildings and most of the medieval buildings on sites 
had all the stone removed, including the foundations, leaving just the line of the foundation trench, which has then been backfilled with unwanted material. And the difficulty with that is it's very similar to the ground through which the trench was cut originally, and the ground probing radar has difficulty recognising the difference. So our survey revealed one or two clusters of rubble, one or two blobs which may or may not have been grave slabs, but mainly it was useful for identifying where all the service lines were. So not very good archaeologically, but very good to help us target uh, effectively to avoid uh, cutting off the social services department of the city council. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Richard, let me stop you there for one second. We've had the same set of issues. And and what one of the uh, sort of the side benefits of the GPR is it actually allows you to track these things. And for all I know, you're you're providing the city with a fair amount of information about old service lines and old sewer lines and gas lines that can be, in some cases, we find that they didn't even have maps of those. I imagine you have the same issues. How... Yeah. Uh, how one of the strategies that we have found, and I'm getting off the topic a little bit, but I think this is something that would be of interest to people who are learning about urban archaeology. We've used probes, geoprobes, and coring devices to get to the pristine layers uh, underneath the ground surface. In other words, we know where the disturbance is by looking at that. We put cores, uh, drilling cores, through the ground. Do you use that kind of strategy at all or no? Not normally, no. I mean, we, we, we use augers when we're actually on a site and we're digging, for example, medieval pits and wells. We might right. auger the fill so we can get an idea of the depth of the pit. It's often too dangerous to dig it. But not right. as a prospection technique, no. Well, we, we have found that when we get detailed... Um, detailed maps of the utility lines and we work in cooperation with city agencies that they will actually identify areas for us that are absolutely clear of utility lines and then we we probe the uh, we probe into the substrate and we're at the point right now in the city here where we kind of know what to expect in other words there's yeah. an expected sequence and I'm sure you're up against this too you know when you hit a certain color of sediment or soil yes, yes. that you are underneath the depth of, of uh, contemporary disturbance. Yes. Right. Yes, I mean, I mean, the deposit model I've referred to is giving you the depths of the, effectively, the Roman and medieval archaeology. So that's, that's sort of helping predict how deep the trenches need to be. Um, but yes, I suppose we come and we could theoretically core down to below what we think is the modern disturbance to get an idea of how far it is down to the top of archaeology. But in practice, we haven't tried that yet uh, on these sites because mostly they've got tarmac or, or sort of paving stones on them. Right. In some cases, however, I will tell you this, the geoprobes will go through that. Okay. Yeah, they yeah. can. Yeah. In any case, let's get back to let's get back to your actual search for okay. for the uh, for the for the gravesite. Yeah. So okay, so we had the, so the GPR survey was completed, which showed service lines, but no walls to target. So on the basis that um, the plan of a friary should be relatively predictable, i.e., it should have a, a church that's orientated east-west. It should have a cloister garth, which is a courtyard surrounded by walkways called cloister alleys. And then around those cloister alleys, there should be other buildings like a dormitory and a refectory and a west range. We should be able to get an idea that most walls, a lot of the walls, will be running east-west. And so the strategy in the end was to plant two 30-meter-long 
1.6 metre wide trenches through the middle of this car park uh, that overlap to create a transect through the whole car park and missing services, of course, um, on the basis that we might pick up some east-west crossed walls. Now, I didn't have any great hopes of finding buildings that we would actually be able to identify what their function might be. Because the problem is, is if the walls have been robbed and the floors have been stripped, how right. do you tell what a building was used for in such a small trench? Um, but the but, breakthrough but really ste- came... step back for a second with the GPR. Yeah. The GPR basically told you where the utility lines were, and that's it. That's it, yes. And then, and then you had to co- you had to coordinate with the city planning agencies to figure out where you could actually do a transect. Well, no, I, I, I suppose you could call it coordinate. Um, what I actually did was was decided, uh, looked at the plan of the site, looked at the service lines, drew a plan that showed where I wanted to put the trenches, and then told them that's yes. what I was going to do, and uh, they were happy with that. Yeah, the thing thing to mention about utilities, which may be different in Britain, is that the the major utilities agencies have detailed plans of the location of services in the public streets. But as soon as you get over the boundary into private land, the information is not there anymore. Same here. Right. So was it was was it it a was it a risky business to do these trenches? I mean, what what was the likelihood? Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is risky. We do something called a CAT scan first, which can pick up live electrical cables. Uh, gas lines are more problematic because um, you, you can't spot them with a CAT, CAT scanner. But because we did right. the GPR survey, we could at least see some very clear lines on, the, on, on, on that survey, which were worth avoiding. So from that point of view, it was a very useful exercise. Okay. And so then what happened? So you put your transects in and uh, moving forward, what happened? Right, so so the first trench went in. Human bones came up in the first first two hours, uh, which we wow. Well, yes, okay. No surprise to get human bones on a, on a, a medieval religious house site, but we don't know whereabouts these bones were in, in relation to the buildings of the friary. I.e., were they outside in the graveyard, inside the church? Right. Were they in the chapter house? Etc. So they were carefully covered up, and then the trench continued. How far down? Length. How far? How far down uh, were you at this point? Uh, 700 millimetres, just over two feet. So quite ah, shallow okay. in master terms, not, not really deep at all. Um, uh, and then, so you yeah, didn't have, safe, trench, you didn't have safety then, issues here? I beg your pardon? You didn't have safety issues here? No, not really. No, I mean, in, in, uh, on our sites, normally we're safe to go down about 1.2 metres without any shoring. And then of course. we would normally then step the trench. We, we, we prefer to step our trenches rather than put shoring right. in. Uh, cause it's less expensive, and also you get to see a full cross-section. Right. We use something called a trench box, depending on the right. amount of room that we have to work in. Anyway, so you're down about seven, so you're down about, uh, uh, I don't know, two feet or something well, like that. Two feet or and... so, yeah, two and a half feet, something like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so, so that's where these bones came up, and there were lots of disturbances from... Nineteenth um, century uh, outbuildings and things like brick outbuildings and things. So it didn't look very promising at that stage. And then further down the trench, we found evidence for two robber trenches parallel with one another, running east-west, um, uh, just a few meters apart. Um, and interestingly, on the insides of those robber trenches were these curious stone benches that still survived. They hadn't been robbed out. Now. 
we were slightly perplexed to start with. We only found one to start with. And suddenly had the bright idea that these were benches inside a building, which immediately mm-hmm. makes you think of uh, which buildings within a, uh, a medieval religious house would have benches where people would sit. And there are two possibilities. One is the refectory, and the second is the chapter house, where the, the guardian of the friary would meet the friars daily to discuss the business of the friary. So having identified that as a chapter house, it then helped us to understand what we found in the second trench, which was a pair of parallel robber trenches about two and a half metres apart with evidence for um, a tile floor between them. The tiles had all gone. It was just the mortar bedding that survived. So that then became the eastern cloister walk. So that's one of the walkways that surrounds this open space called the Cloister Garth. And the chapter house opens off the eastern cloister walk. So that meant we were right in the heart of the friary by chance. And it meant then that the church was either going to be on the north side of the chapter house or on the south side. Because the eastern cloister walk leads straight into the church, either the north or the south. Okay? Yep. So then we had one trench in reserve. I mean, bearing in mind, we had a very small budget for this project, and, and over half of the budget had to be used to backfill the trenches, compact the soil, and re-tarmac them so that wow. uh, they could park there again. So we had about £15,000 altogether to cover all the staff wages, uh, the machinery costs, and all those sorts of things, plus the writing up time as well. Right. So but quite a small archaeological project in the greater scheme of things. But we had enough money left to do a third trench, and so we then dug that um, on the east side of where we'd been working before, because we'd seen something that might have been a robber trench north of the chapter house, and we wanted to test whether the church was on the north side, as you might expect it to be. They aren't always, but sometimes they are. And then, lo and behold, that one revealed, first of all, some reused medieval floor tiles to be used uh, for, for garden paving, probably in the 17th century, and then a pair of parallel robber trenches, one with a buttress, uh, about seven and a half metres apart. And so wow. that meant we had this massive building on the north side of the chapter house, and which was almost certainly the church. Um, what then confirmed that it was a church were a series of very large architectural fragments of window tracery and window surrounds, so stone window surrounds and tracery, um, plus quite a few medieval floor tiles came up, and we also found evidence of two distinct areas of paving in this trench. Again, the tiles had all been prized away in the past and thrown and reused elsewhere, but it left the mortar bedding behind with the grout lines of the tiles. Do you understand that term, grout lines? I don't know whether you call it that in, in the States, but the, the gaps between tiles that are filled in with cement. So you could actually yeah, the see grout, right. the grout the lines. Yeah, the grout cracks, right. So you could see basically how the tiles have been laid, and some were laid diagonally, and some were laid in, in straight lines, which meant we had two distinct spaces in the church with a division between the two. So that then led okay. to the possibility of, of, of expanding the trench slightly to get a better idea of, of what the distinction was between these two spaces. 
so further machining was then done to try and clarify that. Right. And we also, at that stage, had then realized that the burial that we found in the first two hours actually did lie inside the church. So you were able so to put all this together so, and realize it was a single, it was a single stage? Yes, so, so, so now we had a church and we had a burial that was within it. And what was quite fun really was that we started to dig this burial then. So Jack will be donned her CSI protective gear to avoid any right. contamination of the DNA. Contamination, sure, of course. So she went down into the trench and started digging the burial because it seemed appropriate to do it at that stage. Um, and I, meanwhile, was on the other side of, of, of the wall discussing the finer points of the interpretation with a visiting specialist to make sure he agreed with our interpretation. It's always important, as you know, to share ideas with other archaeologists. And we right. thought at this stage we might have a junction between the choir of the church, which is the bit just east of the central point where the friars would sit in choir stalls facing inwards to, uh, opposite one another, and so the junction between that and the presbytery to the east, which is the area in front of the high altar. And the visiting specialist concurred with this idea, so it was all coming together. And at the same time as that meeting was taking place, the burial was being excavated, and the site supervisor, Matthew Morris, came over to me while I was having this meeting and said, I think you ought to come and see this. It's something really interesting. And um, I sort of said, um, actually, I'm really busy right now. Can you go away? <laughs> I'm talking to these visitors. And he said, no, you really do need to come and see this. And so um, he then explained to me that with the burial that Joe was uncovering had, uh, had evidence for curvature of the spine. And, and on that note, we're going to leave the audience in suspense as we take a break, and we will come back and, and actually talk about the discovery, if you will. We'll be back after these words. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. 
This is Joe Schuldenryan. We're back with our very exciting ex- uh, program on the exposure and discovery of the bones of Richard III with our special guest, Richard Buckley, who is the project manager for this, uh, for this fascinating project. And he is telling us the story of how all of this came together. Uh, the, the team was uh, excavating into the subsurface in the vicinity of, of, of Leicester Town. And they are actually describing the uh, the uh, discovery of the friary itself, and have at this point established a connection, uh, a contemporaneous connection between the bones that were found early in the project and the facility itself. So, Richard, why don't you continue and uh, erase the suspense as you as as it were? <laughs> yes. So, so uh, as I was saying, I was, I was having a meeting with a specialist to discuss the final points of the interpretation of the the east end of the church. Meanwhile, Jarpa, we were digging this burial, and then I was informed that this burial actually had some very interesting characteristics. It had curvature of the spine, and it had trauma to the skull. I think that was probably the moment when I was the most excited. I probably jumped up and down and did a little dance at that stage and said, (laughs) you know, uttered a few uh, unrepeatable words, because I I just couldn't believe how this project had gone. I mean, you know, to to actually have identified the chapter house, the cloister walk, and the church was good enough for me. I could have gone home quite happily at that stage. But then to find that this burial actually was in the choir of the church, we'd worked that out, and it had these very obvious, recognisable characteristics, was amazing. And uh, I think before we started the project, I'd expected that we might have to dig up to six sets of remains. This is assuming we would actually find a church. And that right. uh, of those remains, we wouldn't necessarily be sure which one was Richard, because he wouldn't necessarily have curvature of the spine or of evidence of trauma. It, we might just find it's a 32-year-old man, and we'd have to do the DNA and the carbon dating, to, to suggest that it could be him. So this was a this was quite remarkable. That there were these these very obvious visual characteristics. So where are you? Uh, what day is this? Today, uh, this is uh, this is about a, a week and a bit after we'd started the project. Okay, and when did you start the project specifically? So people, it was on I mean, this the is probably... twenty. Well, twenty fifth of August, the Saturday was when we actually started digging the trenches, and that was when the bones first came up, but then were hidden hidden away. I think right. we had the following week to work on. I think it was actually the week that it wasn't the following, immediately the following week. It was the week after that. So it was about sort of 10 days, 10 or 12 days later. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, so, so the burial then, Joe Appleby excavated the uh, rest of the burial. Uh, it was there till about 7 o'clock at night, and then the bones were very carefully packaged up and, uh, and transported um, back to back to the University of Leicester, ready for analysis. And um, I think there was no doubt in my mind that we found him at that stage. But, of course, we had to go through proper process and do right. all of the scientific analysis to confirm it. I assume that was expedited. Yes. I mean, one of the first things we did was radiocarbon dating, um, we sent two lots of samples off, and the samples came back with dates after they'd been modelled, because there's quite a bit of complexity to the radiocarbon dating, because of uh, the fact the individual had a very high protein diet and high in marine, the high marine element, which can make the dating right. earlier than it should be. Uh, but uh, after that had been remodelled, 
it came out broadly with a date range of 1455 to 1540, uh, which meant that the individual could have died in 1485. That was fine. Plus, it was a high-status individual, which was great. Then Joe did her analysis. Joe Apple did her analysis of the uh, the the trauma to the skeleton, and showed uh, that there were a series of wounds to the skull, uh, particularly to the back of the skull, where there's a large slice of bone that had been taken out by a halberd, probably another sort of dagger penetration wound, another wound to the top of the skull, and a wound to the face and to the jaw. There was a uh, further down the skeleton. There was a wound to one of the ribs and also a wound to the pelvis. Now, we think the wounds to the head suggest that, you know, he'd been unhelmeted by that stage in the battle, in the melee. He'd he'd probably off his horse, had his helmet pushed off, and one of the wounds to the rear of the skull were probably the ones that actually killed him, or the death would have been instantaneous. Other wounds to the skull, we can't be sure whether they were at at the time of death or or afterwards. But what we do think is that the, uh, the, the wound to the rib and the wound to the pelvis, uh, maybe insult wounds or humiliation injuries, where the, the naked king has perhaps been thrown over a horse, ready to bring him back to Leicester, and people have stabbed him in the right buttock and in the back. And they're quite well known from the medieval period, such wounds. But I suppose right, the other right. really fascinating thing, which wasn't immediately apparent until I stared intently at the photograph of the remains in situ, was that the uh, first of all, the grave was not long enough for him, so he was buried in a grave with his head propped up at one end, his head and his shoulder propped up at one end. Um, the grave was very irregularly cut, um, so a very curved base and sloping sides. There was no evidence for a coffin in the form of nails or, or marks in the ground. There was no evidence for a shroud because the, the bones were not sort of com- compact, which is what you normally expect as a shroud. And there was no evidence for anything from clothing. Um, sometimes get gold thread in high-status burials or, or other uh, fastenings and things like that. Right, uh, right. Plus, the hands seemed to be placed over the right thigh, the right hand over the left. And in Leicester, we've dug thousands of medieval burials. Only very rarely do you get the hands over, crossed over on one side. And we wonder whether this might indicate that his hands are actually tied when he was put into the ground. Right. And, you know, this sort of ties very well with the historical accounts that suggest that he was buried without any great pomp or funeral. Um, So, you know, that's, again, a bit of supporting evidence for the identification. But the really compelling evidence at the end of the day, after all these bits are stacked up, which suggests that the balance of probability is that it's Richard III, the final thing was uh, really the DNA analysis by Dr. Turi King, which provided, first of all, a match between the Canadian Michael Ibsen and another descendant of Richard III's elder sister, Anne of York, down the female line. So they matched those two bits first and then matched that DNA with the ancient DNA extracted from the burial, which basically proved that it was Richard III. So you located, uh, you located his descendants, correct? Not his descendants, no. Richard III has no descendants because his children didn't have any issue. So what they were doing was tracking uh, descendants of Anne of York, Richard's elder sister. Ah, okay. Yeah. So 17th generation descendants of her 
down the female line. So the mitochondrial DNA is passed down through the egg from female, through the female line. Um, and, and that's how eventually it got to Michael Ibsen, the Canadian, and then this other person who doesn't wish to be named. Um, so that was, that, was, that was the final thing that sort of really confirmed matters. I suppose the other thing, just to mention briefly, is the, sort of the, the scariest moment of the uh, project, which was when Dr. Joe Appleby rang me up after the press conference when we initially found the remains back in September and said, I'm not sure it's a man, I think it might be a woman. Ah, oh, my God. Which, you can imagine somebody telling you that after you've had all yes. this press and uh, <laughs> you, know, you start planning emigration to South America or something. Oh and, um, but, but what was really interesting, of course, is that sex in a skeleton is, you know, you have to look at a series of characteristics. Of course. And, you know, there, there were many characteristics on this skeleton that suggested that his build was very slight and people use the word gracile. Uh, so quite sort of feminine in many ways. And there is actually a historical account from the German historian von Popelau, who, who talks about Richard, um, I think, slightly lacking in masculinity in terms of his appearance. Not in terms of, uh, but in other terms, but, but suggesting that he's very slight build. So in fact, we we, we just have a couple more minutes left. Where is your research going at this point, after you've made this discovery? What, what next? Where, where do you go with this? Well, we, we obviously have to get the, the results of this published, uh, in the, the journal Antiquity is going to have an article, hopefully in in um, in, in June, that's published, and then the uh, that'll be the archaeology, and then the the, the the human bone analysis and the, and the DNA will be published uh, as well subsequently. But apart from that, there's a little bit more work to do on the on the burial, through stable isotope analysis to tell you about the environment that he grew up in. So that's yeah. underway at the moment, and also there's some cutting edge work on dental calculus. Uh, so, so residues on the teeth, which again can tell you about diet. But apart from that, it's back to business as usual. So we're we're now digging to get another site in Leicester. A Roman cemetery is under excavation at the moment, and there are lots of other projects all over the, the region. So uh, yeah, business as usual, really. And uh, you've gotten a lot of press on this. Obviously, it's all over the major news wires. Um, is this this is obviously a wonderful thing for uh, archaeology, and certainly for uh, the type of archaeology that you're doing. And uh, I think you you share with me the idea that this is the way archaeology will be done uh, going forward uh, on a large scale, and uh, that there's tremendous amount to to be learned from doing archaeology, where the sort of the research project is sort of imposed from without, and yet uh, the methods that you use uh, sort of go towards maximizing recovery with, uh, with some significant resources that you get because your, your strategies and your techniques are increasingly more sophisticated and that this is the wave of the future. Absolutely. And, and, it, and it's, if it's fostering excitement in the process of research and fostering an interest in archaeology generally, it's got to be a good thing. And on that note, we're going to have to end the program. I want to thank uh, Richard Buckley for sharing the amazing story of the recovery and the uh, exhumation of the bones of Richard III. And uh, we will continue with these types of programs going forward. I want to thank you very much again, Richard Buckley. And uh, until next time, uh, good evening and thank you so much. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.